today, um, here's the proverb that I chose for you. And, okay, don't give me any grief because we had a snow day and it changed our dates, but I'd already picked this one too. So 16th, although today's not the 16th, you get one from last week's date. Do you feel shortchanged? Because I could find another one real quick if you want to. Okay, 1624. Kind words are like honey, sweet to the soul and healthy for the body. Honey, that means I can eat honey. It's healthy for the body. Give me more honey. Um, today is the third week in um, a series we're, we're calling Perspectives, and we've been going through the book of Philippians. It's four chapters. You could read it in 15 minutes. I encourage you sometime to do that. And so we just kind of have been wandering through. And there is something, as you read the book of Philippians, you'll notice that there are things going on there that the viewpoint of the author doesn't really seem to match his 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 circumstances. And so how is it that he's got a different perspective than it would seem he would have? And so that's why we're calling it perspective. And I want to talk to you today about seeing things from a different perspective. I, I remember the first time I was introduced to um, anything directed by Alfred Hitchcock. I was a little guy, and I don't know how come I saw this movie. I guess as a little guy, I like scary movies. And I think that's pretty common. People, for some reason, we want to scare ourselves. I'm not saying that's a good thing to do, but as a kid, that's just where I was. Probably still a little bit where I am today. But I remember a movie called The Birds. Remember that? <laughs> and I remember the first time someone said, have you seen The Birds? No. Oh, you know, I said, oh, that made me want to see it more. And um, there's, this, there's this, this, this thing that directors do in scary movies, and that is they will let you see some things that the characters in the movie don't get to see. You know what I'm talking about? So you'll see something, you go, oh, that's not good. And you'll see the person, you know, and they're going to go, and you say, no, no, don't go through that door. Don't go in there. And they haven't seen, although they've read the script. You want to help them anyway. I mean, have you ever been in a movie theater and some guy's shouting, don't go in there? It's kind of funny. I'm not that guy, by the way. Um, But, you know, you'd see these things going on that the characters couldn't see, and you'd want to tell them, because don't, it's dangerous. There's, there's a perspective involved there. And um, I mean, another one was another creepy movie. I'm not here to push creepy movies, but there was another one about 15 years ago. It was, it was called The Sixth Sense, and it had Bruce Willis and this little boy. This creepy movie about this little boy who could see dead people. That's creepy. You know, why am I talking to you about that? I don't know. But I mean, you can see things. <laughs> the directors, they have this technique where they will let you see something that the people in the story don't see and you know that they shouldn't go. Because if they, had see, if they could see what you would see, they would do things differently in life. And the directors are pretty good at that. And I, you know, I, I, I want to share something with you along those same lines, and this might surprise you. But I see things that you don't see. And you see some things probably that I don't see. In fact, um, here's a key thought that we'll build on for the day today, and it's this. What you have experienced in life, what you've experienced determines what you see. What you've experienced in life, what you have experienced determines what you see. You know, I'll give you a couple of, of examples. You know, I've kind of always been a car guy. I was a... In junior high and at a friend's house and her father says, hey, have you ever been to the car races? I said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. He says, well, come with me. And I thought, oh, that's cool. So he took me to SIR, Seattle International Raceway, one Sunday afternoon and it was a sports car race. And I loved it. 
I was hooked. I mean, you know, if I'd been on a fishing line, you could see this hook going in. I mean, I loved what I saw. It was the coolest thing. And uh, I, that, that ferment, for, forever for me cemented this lifelong passion that I have about cars. You know, I mean, I don't know if it's, maybe it's out of balance. I don't know. But I, if it's a car race, I like it. So today is the beginning of the new year. Today is the Daytona 500. And so, I mean, if it's a car race, I like it, and I watch it, and I learn about it, and I know about it, and, um, and yet, on the other hand, I'm married to Lisa, my loving wife, doesn't really give a rip about cars, um, except that they get her from A to B, and, uh, you know, we, she's good, she's a good sport, she'll go with me to a car race now and then, and I'll explain to her everything that's going on, and she very patiently pretends she's interested. <laughs> I know, honey. I know you're just being loving. I mean, the same thing happens, you know. I mean, I, her thing is plants. If it grows and it flowers and it blooms, or she cre- she's creative, she makes other things, and um, I look at those things, and I kind of like them. Like, there's something that smells good that happens in our yard in February or March. I think it's Daphne or something. Okay. I've learned that over 38 years of marriage, just about. It's called Daphne. But I couldn't pick it out. And I swear, if you go into the nursery, there's 87 different kinds of Daphne, and none of them are the ones that, that bloom. I mean, I can't keep this straight, but she, she sees these things and looks at them, and she knows them, and I just don't, I don't see them. You know, here's another. For some of you, you don't ever see dust or clutter. You just don't see it. You don't even see the wash me scribbled on the side of your car. And then there are others of you you can't see anything but three microscopic crumbs that somehow fell in the corner and they're still there. That's all you can see. You can't see anything but those crumbs. You don't see it or you do see it. And, um, you know, for me, another one is like, you know, I've just been in church leadership for so long that I can have a tendency if I walk into, if I, when we go on vacation and I go to church somewhere else, I walk in and um, it's really hard for me to detach and go to church because I start looking around and I start looking at the way they do things and how they do things and the way the facilities look and all that. And I know things about their leadership just from looking because it's just kind of pre-wired into me after all these years in ministry, almost 30 years as a pastor. And um, it's almost a curse that I go in and I see all this stuff. And Lisa's saying, go to church. I'm at church. No, no, go to church. Go get, you know... And I just see these things. It's not that I'm being critical. I just see them. And other people going, hey, it's just church. And they don't see what I see because they just haven't experienced what I've experienced in life. Some of you, you know, if your car breaks down, you think, oh, this is what's going on. I've got a close friend who he knows everything going on in his car. And if something happens, he goes, oh, I know what to do. And he opens up the hood and he sees something. Others of you, your car breaks down You'll open up the hood because that's what you're supposed to do. And if it's not on fire, you can't see what's wrong. You just don't see anything. The reality is that, that I see some things that you don't see, and you see some things that I don't see, because what we've experienced determines what we see. The Apostle Paul is talking to um, some people in this church of Philippi that he really loved, and he had, he had planted this church. And because of his experience... He saw some things going on in that church that they just didn't see. And Paul, Paul's experience, he, he, he experienced more of the sinfulness of, God, of life and more of the goodness of God probably than most people at both extremes. And because of what he had experienced, he saw some things that they didn't see. 
So I want to talk for a second about you know, the sinfulness of man. He, he said the words, I'm chiefest of sinners. You can read about that in First Timothy. We've got to figure out that because Paul was, um, you know, he was, he, he persecuted Christians. He killed Christians. He was pretty focused on it. He knew how dark the heart of mankind could be. He was also on the receiving end of that. He was, he was beaten again and again by sinful people. He was whipped. He was stoned. The non-recreational kind, you know. He was stoned. Um, he was three different prisons by Roman guards and, um, you know, just all that for preaching the gospel. He knew what it was to, to be dark-hearted towards people and he knew what it was to suffer under, because of somebody else's dark heart. And on the other side, he also experienced the goodness of God in a way that most of us haven't. You know, here he was persecuting Christians and he's going along this road one day and this light blinds him and the very real presence of God shows up and he hears this audible voice and God stirs him up and, and God called him to his ministry and God empowered him in, in a way that just changed him. Another place, Paul describes the fact that he was caught up into this other spiritual realm and experienced something of heaven that was so wonderful that he said that words can't even describe it. You can read about that in 2 Corinthians 12. I'm not going to go there now, but... Because of what he had experienced, he wanted to help this, this, this people in the church of Philippi see some things that they didn't see. And remember now, he's writing this letter. He's chained up as a prisoner. He had always wanted to go to Rome and be a preacher, but this wasn't what he had in mind, and instead he's in prison. And, you know, we would look at that and go, that's terrible. It's just, but he was looking at things from a completely different perspective, and he's He's seeing some things that other people see. So, so we're going to start in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, and see what he says. Okay, so verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord. That's great, because we're going to talk about more about that next week. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Because of what he had experienced, he, <clears throat> he saw some danger, and there were some that he thought that were present in the church that were vulnerable to some of the lies of the enemy. So he, he sees some things that this, these people in the, in the church of Philippi, they could unknowingly slip into, and he wanted to present to them the truth as a safeguard. Now, let me maybe fill in the blanks here with a little bit of history to kind of help you see, see what's going on. After Jesus came and died and rose again, um, the first century believers started taking the message of the gospel out. And um, the first people that they took it to were the Jews. That's who they knew. They could speak their language uh, figuratively and literally. And you can read all about that in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, about how they did that. Then they started taking their message to a group of people that are called the Samaritans. Now, if you don't really know who the Samaritans are, um, you can look it up. Wikipedia has a good explanation of it. But, but basically, they were people pri- primarily who had been intermixed with the Jewish um, and the surrounding nations. So they were like half Jewish and half not Jewish, many of them. And um, so they were sharing the gospel. They started sharing the gospel with, with the Samaritans. And people were saying, well, can you do that? Well, yeah, I guess so, because they're kind of half Jewish. So yeah, you can kind of share the gospel with them. And they decided to do that too. And then some people were stretching it even further and going out and sharing the gospel with people who were the Gentiles. They had nothing to do with Judaism and um, actually taking it to them. And some very, very strict Jewish leaders came along and they said, hold it. 
You can't do that. Gentiles can't just become Christians. You know, they have to first become Jewish, follow Jewish rules, and then they can become Christians. So that's what's going on, and uh, Paul's in the middle of all that. And one of the big arguments, the, one of the primary ones, was that these people, were, if they were going to get saved, they got to get circumcised. So, you can only imagine what that's like at the end of church service. Okay, guys, you want to open your heart to the Lord? Come on up here, and I get my scalpel out. Anybody want to raise your hand? <laughs> wouldn't see you. <laughs> no, I wouldn't raise my hand either. So, you know, so um, there's this huge <laughs> tension. You know, can a Gentile become a Christian? Or do you first have to follow these Jewish laws? And there's a great big debate that goes on. You can read all about it in Acts chapter 15. It was known as the Conference of Jerusalem, and um, they, they kind of flogged this question. And there had already been some people that had gone out in the field, and their ruling was that, yeah, you, can, you, can, you don't have to become Jewish. And they were g- giving the gospel to the Gentiles. And so it's like, so they have this conference in Jerusalem where, you know, the officials get together, and finally the guy blows the whistle and he says, okay, ruling on, ruling on the field stands. You don't have to become a Jew before you can get saved. And that decision by this council was, um, you know, it set Paul and other people free to go ahead and, and share the message of the gospel with all people. Now, that passage, Acts 15, I encourage you to just do a devotion on that sometime. Acts 15 all by itself. Because there are decisions, there are revelations of the Holy Spirit in that chapter that will confront the Pharisee that lives in every heart. And ask yourself the question. This is a complete rabbit trail. Ask yourself the question, what are the laws that I want other people to be required to, to, to perform, to live up to? Anyway, it's, a, it's, a, it's quite a rabbit trail to go down that one. And I'd say I've camped out on that, um, that section more times than I, than I would want to admit. So Paul and others are free now, and they're out there um, sharing the gospel. And he would say, you know, he'd say, all you need is Christ in order to be right with God. In order to be right with God, all you need is Christ, which was amazing. And there was another group that was running around, and they were called the Judaizers, and um, they still believed that the first, that you have to be circumcised first before you could, you know, and, and, and you have to follow these rules. And um, they would say, you know, what, what Paul said was good, but there's still more. You still need to follow this list of Jewish laws. And frankly, that argument rages on today. It does. Even in the Christian community, it rages on today where people will latch on to and say, here's the things you have to really be doing if you're going to prove that you have a relationship with God. Here's what you really got to look like and act and act like and behave. And um, in fact, the argument uh, in Acts 15 about that whole thing, it says there was no small disagreement. They were having a good old row about this topic. It was pretty passionate. So because of Paul's experience, he saw some dangers that he thought that the Philippian Christians didn't see. And he says, I want to help you. So today I'm going to share with you what I see are three dangers that all believers need to see. He's going to say in different words to the church of Philippi, the first danger is this. See the dangers of legalism. See the dangers of legalism. Now, you might say to yourself, well, what exactly, you know, can you define that for me? Okay, I boiled it down to its most simple, that this is, for me, 
I would say legalism is honoring rules over relationship. Substituting rules for relationship. It's like saying, I'm going to be made right with God by, by what I do or by what I don't do according to some set of rules. It could be, you know, biblical rules. It could be man-made rules. It can be Jewish rules. It can be the rules of the Foursquare denomination or the Assembly of God denomination or the Baptist church or the Catholic church or a non-denomination. Pick your, pick your list source. Don't care. But it's substituting what should be relationship with God through Christ. Substituting, instead of that, rules that we follow. And here's what he says in verse 2. He says to the Philippians, Watch out for those dogs. What's wrong with dogs? Um, he's taking a jab at them because <laughs> the Jews, you know, the Jews would often call Gentiles dogs. It was a denigrating term. So he's saying, oh, you, you know, you want to call Gentiles dogs? So we'll just write back at you. you. You know, there are some Jews that are dogs too. He says, watch out. He could have said something else and I'm not going to go there today. Um, he said, he said <laughs> watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil those mutilators of the flesh. Now, he's, that's, he's talking about circumcision. For it is we who are the circumcision. In other words, our hearts have already been cut back. We've been spiritually circumcised, he's basically saying. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Don't put that. Don't, don't, just don't miss that. No confidence in the flesh. What's he getting at? It means we don't put any confidence in, in, in being right with God because of the things we do, because of our human efforts. It's not about how good we are or all the bad stuff we stopped doing. We don't put any confidence in that. Um, any confidence. He says in verse 4, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. In other words, hey, if there's anybody who should have confidence in their accomplishments, it's me. And um, now he, he says, if anyone, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And now here comes his religious resume um, of what many would have considered his success. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew, you don't think there was a status going, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Wow. Hear him say, he's saying here, faultless. In other words, he's saying, I, you know, I was born in the right group. I'm in the elite of the elite. elite. He's saying, as a Pharisee, I, I, I obeyed more rules and laws than most people can count. And I got every one of them right. It's a pretty bold statement. To us, it'd be like saying, you know, my father was Billy Graham and my mother was Mother Teresa. You know, I was like, you know, I was dedicated as a baby and then I was baptized as an adult and um, I was, I went to, grew up in Christian school and I went to seminary and I got my master's in theology and I learned to walk on water before I learned how to swim and I love Christian, you know, liturgy in church and I speak in tongues. It's like, he's like, got this, I got it all covered. I got it all going on. And when he said that, he's implying some things that they would have known. They would have understood. Because a Pharisee didn't follow 10 commandments. A Pharisee followed 613. And some of these commandments, some of these rules were pretty whacked out. I mean, I, I 
I read through them a couple of times this last week, and I'm going to pick on them a little bit. I'm going to share a couple of them with you, okay? Here are some of the rules the Pharisees would follow. You can't eat an egg laid by a chicken on the Sabbath. Okay. I don't know how you know that, unless you, whatever, I don't know. Um, Here's another one. If you have an unsolved murder, you have to break the neck of a calf down by the river. Just saying. Just saying. You know, if you find a mother bird that was taken from the nest, you've got to put her back. I like that one. That sounds good. That sounds good to me. Here's another one. Here's for you contractor guys. If you have a flat roof, you must build a guardrail around the edge. That will make you closer to God. I would think not having a guardrail would make you become closer to God. <laughs> if you got bitten by a mosquito on the Sabbath, can't scratch it. <laughs> I don't think about it until after I've scratched it about 18 times. If, and here's another one. You're not allowed to look in a mirror or a reflective glass on the Sabbath because you might see a gray hair, and be tempted to yank, none of you would do that, and yank it out, which would be work. Can't, I mean, I mean this, all 613, this guy's, this guy's got them going on. And um, we look at that and we think, you know, that's kind of silly. You know, who would consider that to do those things would make you right with God? Well, we have a modern day translation. Here's how you might hear it today. You'd say, well, I'm right with God because I go to church and I never miss. Or um, I, I, go on, I go on Sunday mornings even if the Seahawks are playing that day. I still go to church. And, um, or, <laughs> you know, I pray an hour a day. You only do 58 minutes? Oh, you know. Or, you know, we, 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 we say things that we don't do. Or, you know, I'm not bad like those other people. And then we define our righteousness by the things we don't do. I don't go to R-rated movies, not even The Passion of the Christ because it's rated R. Or, um, you know, I don't watch scary movies, Pastor Terry. I don't watch, I don't care about the birds. Don't make me, you know. Okay, so, I mean, we got this list. Another one was, you know, I don't listen to secular music. In fact, when, we, when I first got saved, brand new Christian, I was pretty convinced that secular music was really evil. I mean, I really, I really believed that for a while until I got mature and I realized that it was only Barry Manlow that was evil music. <laughs> and then later, rap came along and I had, okay, they got Barry Manlow covered here. So sorry if you're into rap. I'm sorry. Just joking. But I was in this legalistic place where I really felt like you, you can't be right with God and um, do this or that. And a lot of us get kind of sucked up into this performance mindset. You know, when we first got saved, the church we attended had a Sunday morning and a Sunday night that was different and a Wednesday night. Many of you can identify with this. And so we went to church Sunday morning, we went to church Sunday night, we went to church Wednesday night. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. It's good. But after a while, it became our performance. In fact, there was a mindset present in that church that said, if you didn't go... Sunday morning plus Sunday night plus Wednesday night, there's something wrong with you. 
I know some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. That's, that's, uh, I mean, it was this performance mindset. And, and so, so what does this legalism do to us? It does a couple of things. It leads to this false guilt when we do something wrong. And it leads to false confidence. You know, there are a lot of Christians today that, you know, they beat themselves up. They don't have any joy. They say to themselves, I've failed. I've, I'm not right with God. I can never make a difference with God because of the things I've done. That's legalism. That's legalism. And the flip side is this false confidence. Hey, I'm better than these other people. I, I, I go to the right kind of church. I do the right kind of worship. And, you know, the way we do it is right. And there are some other people that are close, but, you know, they're not exactly right, but we do it right. I mean, that's, and Paul says, watch out for that. Be careful. You need to see this, he's saying, because if you'd experienced what I've experienced, you'd see these things that I'm seeing. And there, he's saying that there are false teachers that are going to take the gospel and add something to it, and you're going to slip into something that's going to hurt you. And he's scared. I don't know, maybe too strong a word. He's saying, watch out for that. Don't, don't get pulled into that legalism that makes you feel guilty. When Romans 8.1 says so clearly, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. None. No condemnation. Do you feel condemned right now? That is not heaven. If you're in Christ Jesus, you might feel some conviction of the Holy Spirit. Hey, five degrees left rudder. That's one thing. But condemnation is not God. The Lord does not condemn his beloved. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. Camp out there if you need to. I encourage. I know there are people hearing this in this room right now that need to camp out on that scripture. Not to give themselves license, but to remember how God sees them. Romans 8, 1. And, um, so, so don't, that, that is, and you don't let your confidence puff you up with some sort of knowledge that you think you have. Because if you'd experienced what, you know, what he's saying, what I've experienced, he'd say, there are those out there that are going to try and add something to the gospel that's only going to rob you of what Christ wants to give you. And some of you, you maybe grew up in this kind of an environment where, you know, um, you had this performance mentality. And some of you might be stuck in it right now today. You're feeling guilty, 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 guilty. And God has already forgiven your sins. And you need to forgive yourself. Others might be, you know, maybe a little more puffed about our spiritual resume than, than, uh, than we ought to be. And that's being full of pride. You've got this false confidence in something that, that doesn't add anything to your standing with God. And, and because it's all about Christ. It's, it's all about Christ and nothing else. Nothing else. And Paul sees the dangers of legalism. Second thing he says is, see the dangers of worldly distractions. Don't let the things of this world distract you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one. And I don't know about you, but I get distracted kind of easily about things that matter. I mean, it's pretty common for me now to be sitting with a whole, my whole family together doing something as a family, and I've got an iPad in my lap, and I'm doing something, and I'm focused on something that I'm focused on and some, something going on and all of a sudden the whole, everybody in the room will laugh and, you know, laugh and bring themselves to tears. They're having something wonderful and I'm thinking, what did I miss? What did I miss? Silly example, but when it happens, I regret it. It's like I'm distracted by something, you know, and um, I mean, it's a silly example, but sometimes I feel like 
we could be missing out on some great moments with God or great moments with the people around us because we're distracted by things that don't matter. And, and essentially, that's what Paul's saying, but he, uses, he says it in a pretty much stronger way in verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Not just obeying rules, but knowing him personally. Not, our, not just our accomplishments in life. They don't even register when you realize you could actually know Christ. It's just amazing. He's saying all of that is a loss compared to knowing him. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish. Everybody say rubbish. rubbish. <laughs> now say it with some disdain. Rubbish. rubbish. That's good. That's really good. <laughs> that I may gain Christ. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now this word rubbish, it's kind of fun. I, I, every time I come back to this passage and, and restudy it, I kind of chuckle because the word rubbish there is, is, is skubalon, Greek word. And it's, it's being politely translated as rubbish. Another polite translation is waste. But a more literal translation is close to, but not exactly, the word dung. Okay? In fact, it's considered the word dung with much stronger force behind it. Okay, I'm trying to paint for you a picture here about what he's saying in this argument. And, um, you know, so it means excrement or dung. Okay, all right, all right. Which are very polite and respectable words for, you know, offensive things. And this word would be used when someone would be angry, like doing plumbing or something. I've got to remember this. <laughs> the next time I have a leak. And there's, it's some interesting, too. If, if, you, if, you, if you study this out and you get on the Internet, there are some raging arguments out there right now about theologians, whether Paul was actually using the S word. Okay? There are arguments because, you know, obviously Paul, the author of so much of the New Testament, and, you know, he says in Ephesians 5 that no, let no filthiness or coarse jesting come out of your mouth. And, you know, so they're saying it, it couldn't possibly be that he was using that word in the scripture here. Nevertheless, the Greek word is what the Greek word is. It's a very, very graphic word. And so there's this argument. You can look it up. You can study it. You know, I'm not trying to, you know, cuss in church or anything. I'm just telling you, he's being very graphic and very distasteful. I mean, and, I mean in, in this word, he's saying all of these things of the world, they're dung compared to, to Christ. That's what they are. Attending every Sunday, if that's what you put your, your, your hope in, that's like right up there with dung. <laughs> with waste, with scuba. It's pathetic. I consider them all a loss compared to knowing that the, the greatness of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything that I thought was important just isn't all that special anymore. And unfortunately... I mean, I, I, I hate to see this, just watching in life. Some people have to almost have a near-death experience before they'll get this thing into perspective. I mean, before they'll expose their hearts to this kind of truth or they'll let it come into focus. I mean, one of the most tender times as a pastor that I ever encounter, I hate to say this, is at memorial services. Because people are all of a sudden confronting our mortality. 
we could be brokenhearted about the loss, and that's all the natural thing to do there. But uh, people, people, we were at a memorial service. I had an uncle who passed away, and we went over the Snoqualmie Pass four times in the last 10 days. I'm so glad to be done with that because it was terrible up there. It has nothing to do with the sermon. I just wanted to whine for a minute. <laughs> now that I got that out of my system, I feel so much better, you know. But at memorial services, people will become tender at other, t- they won't at other times because they, they, th- they think about um, mortality. And, you know, I, I feel in those moments, it's not manipulative. I feel like if it's given to me to preside or to lead them, I've got to share something of the gospel because these people are looking for hope. And so I do it in as sensitive and in tender. And, and there's this flittering moment, it seems like, at some of those meetings where people who have hardened their hearts will, um, you know, they'll calculate because they start thinking about the things that they value, the things that they hold dear. And they realize that in, in, in a moment, life can pass away. It's like a vapor. And um, when that moment comes, all that scubula is exactly that. And Jesus becomes everything. Everything. And suddenly all the world's distractions just don't matter so much. It's, he says, I consider it all a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Let's read on to verse 9. And be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. It's not about me or my behavior. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. He's saying we're only made right with God through faith. Verse 10. I want to know Christ. And for anybody in this room who doesn't know Christ, this is my prayer for you, to know him, to know him. Because here I believe the Holy Spirit is using Paul to voice God's concern that people need to know Christ. And the power of his resurrection and fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. There's the prize. He's afraid some of us aren't going to see what's important. Paul's got experiences in, so he's, he's showing us. The third thing he says is this. I want you to see the dangers of spiritual complacency. The, spiritual, the danger of spiritual complacency. Here's the thing. You and I ought to be satisfied with the things we have, but we should never be satisfied with what we've done to bring glory to God. Satisfied with what we, what we have, but never be satisfied with using our gifts to bring glory to the one who made us. And I think that this particular issue is probably one of the most dangerous places for the Christian church in our country. I don't know about the rest of the world. Spiritual complacency. You know, it's, it's about people who are spiritually complacent in their marriage. They just don't care. Or it's raising spiritually complacent kids and being more concerned with how they do on the soccer field um, than they're about their spiritual development. I'm not saying you, but I'm saying it's the church. It's the church in America. It's about being spiritually complacent in our giving. You know, people who, who, who you know, consume more and more things and never ever think to put their trust in God and, and trust Him with their tithe. It's about being spiritually flat and not caring and being satisfied, you know, not satisfied because I want a better house or I want a better car. Paul's saying, watch out. Don't become spiritually complacent. And, and this is what he's saying is these things from prison. He's under house arrest. Maybe he's going to be executed. He's writing, writing this down. Verse 12. 
Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on. Everybody say, press on. on. Good for you. Okay. To take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What a great encouragement from a guy chained up and maybe facing execution. He's saying, if you experience what I've experienced, you'd see what I see. And I've seen the faithfulness of God when I was beaten and left it. He said, he's saying, I've seen the goodness of God when he lifted me into this higher spiritual plane. I've seen the goodness of God when I didn't deserve it. And I've seen the unfaithfulness of men who turned against me. And I've, I, I, you know, here's the deal. He's saying, you can lock me up, but you can't shut me up. You can't. I'm pressing on. I'm going to continue. As long as I got a pen in my fingers and a paper, I will share the gospel. You can chain me up 24-7 to four different guards for six hours at a time, day after day. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead every one of them to Christ if I can. Because when you've experienced what I've experienced, you, can, you can't be still and still be satisfied. You're going to be satisfied with what you have, but never satisfied with what you've done for the glory of God. So I press on and press on. And I believe that he wants to speak through this text as we close. He wants to warn us to see the dangers of legalism. Don't be distracted by a bunch of scubula. And don't get too comfortable spiritually. God wants to do more through you. I really believe that. And he will do more through you. So press on for the things that last. Let's pray.